You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let's open our Bibles to the Scripture readings. In the first place, we read from Leviticus 4, 27-35, and then John 1, 29-42. If a member of the community sins unintentionally and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commands, he is guilty. When he is made aware of the sin he committed, he must bring as his offering for the sin he committed a female goat without defect. He is to lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and slaughter it at the place of the burnt offering. And the priest is to take some of the blood with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering and pour out the rest of the blood at the base of the altar. He shall remove all the fat, just as the fat is removed from the fellowship offering. And the priest shall burn it on the altar as an aroma pleasing to the Lord. In this way, the priest will make atonement for him and he will be forgiven. If he brings a lamb as his sin offering, he is to bring a female without defect. He is to lay his hand on its head and slaughter it for a sin offering at the place where the burnt offering is slaughtered. And the priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering and pour out the rest of the blood at the base of the altar. He shall remove all the fat just as the fat is removed from the lamb of the fellowship offering, and the priest shall burn it on the altar on top of the offerings made to the Lord by fire. In this way, the priest will make atonement for him for the sin he has committed, and he will be forgiven. Also, we turn to John chapter 1, verses 29 to 42. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look! the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. And John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him, except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen, and I testify that this is the Son of God. Next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying and spent that day with him. It was about the tenth hour. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, We have found the Messiah, that is, the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which, when translated, is Peter. Let's consider what the church confesses 
from scriptures this afternoon in Lord's Day 21, question and answer 56. What do you believe concerning the forgiveness of sins? I believe that God, because of Christ's satisfaction, will no more remember my sins, nor my sinful nature, against which I have to struggle all my life, but will graciously grant me the righteousness of Christ, that I may never come into condemnation. Beloved congregation of Christ our Lord, Martin Luther once wrote, and I quote, If the great sublime article called the forgiveness of sins is correctly understood, it makes one a genuine Christian and gives one eternal life. This is the very reason why it must be taught with unflagging diligence and without ceasing, so that people may learn to understand it plainly, clearly, and discriminately. For to do so is the one supreme and most difficult task of Christians. As long as we live here below, we shall have enough to do to learn this article. No one need look for anything new, anything higher, and better. It's the end of the quote. And Luther was right. It is so important to understand what we confess with the article concerning the forgiveness of sins in the Apostles' Creed. There are many different understandings of what divine forgiveness means. And unfortunately, not all of those understandings are biblical. For instance, if you ask, why should God forgive your sins? You're likely to get a variety of answers. Some might say that this is simply who God is and what God does. It's God's business to forgive sins. Others might say that God should forgive our sins because He loves us. Or maybe because I'm so forgivable. Still others might say that God forgives my sins because I repented. Or maybe because I did something else that warranted His forgiveness. Maybe I made up for the the wrong that I did. Put in my penance. And so on. I'm sure that were we to take a survey this afternoon, some of us would have come up with a variety of answers as well. But we need to go back to what the Bible teaches. What does the Bible say about the forgiveness of sins? And in particular, why God should forgive us our sins. And here we have some help because the catechism summarizes the biblical teaching on this point in question and answer 56. This afternoon, we'll briefly look at both the Old Testament and the New Testament as we consider why God should forgive us our sins. Before we go any further, we need to work towards a definition of forgiveness. In Matthew 18, the Lord Jesus told a parable about a servant. This passage gives us a good idea of what God's forgiveness looks like king had a servant who owed him an astronomical amount of money. The servant was not able to pay, and so the king ordered that he be sold along with his entire family. The servant was going to become a slave, and that was going to be the payment for the debt. The servant fell down before the king and begged for mercy. 
He told the king that in due time, all of it would be paid back. You know what happened? The king responded with compassion. Not only did he not sell the servant and his family, he forgave him the debt. That astronomical amount that was owing was just erased from the books as if it had never existed. The servant was completely free of what he owed. The canceled debt freed the servant from eternal slavery, from shame and poverty. Luke 15, the well-known parable of the lost son, prodigal son, we see that divine forgiveness is also about the restoration of relationship. The father forgives his son and receives him back into the family. That's meant to picture what God does in forgiving us. So if we're going to define forgiveness, we could say briefly that it involves canceling the debt of what is owed in order to provide for the restoration of a broken relationship. When we speak about God's forgiveness, the debt that is owed is payment for our sins. God cancels that debt so that we can have a healthy, friendly relationship with Him. The Catechism captures this in in two ways. First of all, by saying that God will no more remember our sins. When we read that, I'm sure we right away come with all kinds of questions. Because after all, didn't a, a few weeks ago, didn't we hear that on the day of judgment, books will be opened and everything that we've ever said, done, and thought will be, will be laid open, publicly exposed for the whole world to see? That sounds a lot like God remembering our sins, doesn't it? Well, Jeremiah 31-34 is an important passage as we think through this. In the second half of the verse, we read these words, For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. This is Hebrew poetry. And in Hebrew poetry, we find quite often what's called parallelism. This is when two lines of poetry are basically saying the same thing, but in different ways, ways that often complement each other. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Now in these words, forgiving and remembering no more parallel and complement each other. Remembering no more explains what it means to forgive. It's important to note that the Holy Spirit didn't use the word forget, but remember. I will remember no more their sins. That's significant because the word remember in the Old Testament is a word that's often used in connection with the covenant. And the covenant, you'll remember, is a relationship. Remembering no more does not refer to the kind of forgetting where you can't remember where you left your keys. It refers to taking something out of the way so that it doesn't form an obstacle to a relationship anymore. In Jeremiah 31, 
God is promising that those sins will never be used against us. They will never be an obstacle to a healthy, friendly relationship with Him. And you'll remember that when Christ comes to judge the living and the dead, the books are not opened and our sins are not exposed so that our sins can be used against us. Rather, those sins are brought up again so that we can be vindicated and that God can be glorified. We're not going to be looking at this when it happens. We're not going to look at it as a moment of infamy where we hang our heads in shame and go, ah, something terrible and awful. We're going to be looking at it as something delightful, a moment where all of God's people will be praising Him for His infinite mercy and compassion. So God will no more remember our sins. Those sins will never be used against us. Never be an obstacle to a relationship with God. That's the first part of forgiveness. The second part is that we will never come into condemnation. See that in the last line. That I may never come into condemnation. In other words, when we are forgiven by God, We are forgiven. Those sins that we committed can never be used against us. God promises that He will not drudge up those sins and then condemn us for them. John 5.24, Christ says, I tell you the truth. Whoever hears My word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. That's His promise to you. That's His promise to all who believe. Now we can deal with the question of why. First of all, let's find out why God forgave sins in the Old Testament. Well, we read from Leviticus 4 about the sin offering. To help you understand what that was about, let me tell you a story. Now this story is meant especially for the kids among us, but I think all of us can and we will learn something from it. It's a Sabbath morning in Israel. On this Sabbath morning we see a family of Israelites, a father, a mother, sister, and brother. They're getting ready to go to the tabernacle which was like going to church in the Old Testament. And as they're getting ready to go, the father tells the little boy, son, go out into the field and get a lamb. Well, the little boy, he knows what that means. When you go to the tabernacle on a Sabbath morning with a lamb, you're not going to be bringing it home. That lamb is going to die. But the little boy, he listens to his dad. He goes out to the field, and his sister comes with. They have to walk a ways before they they find the flock. But they do. And then they have to look for a lamb. The boy and girl, they they looked at the, the lambs as their pets. And so the little boy is very sad. But he must listen to his father. And so... He picks out a lamb. 
And as they're going to the tabernacle, as they're walking on their way, the boy is still sad. The lamb is in his father's arms. The little boy turns to his father and says, Dad, why does this innocent little lamb have to die? I don't want it to die. His father looks at him and says, Well, didn't you disobey your mother when she told you this past week to clean up? Remember how many times you were fighting with your sister? Your mother and I, we didn't love each other the way that we should this past week. And do you remember what happened when I hit my finger with the hammer? What I said? I used God's name in a bad way. These are all sins against the Lord God, but there are only a few. If we would carefully remember how we lived this past week, and everything we did and everything we said and everything we thought, we would know that we have sinned greatly against God. We've broken His commandments. The little boy looks up at his father and says, I know that, Dad. I know that I do some bad things, and I know I know that our family does too, but why does this little lamb have to die? The father says, would you rather have the Lord God punish you and our whole family because of our sins? God is holy. When we sin, He becomes angry. But because the Lord made promises to our fathers and because He loves us, he has given us a way for our sins to be forgiven. We can, we can put our sins on this little lamb so that the lamb can die in our place. If you don't want the lamb to die, then don't do anything wrong anymore. Stop sinning. But dad, I always sin. I can't help it. So my son, the father says, that is why the little lamb must die. When the family gets to the tabernacle, everything happens just like in Leviticus 4. The priest comes and he takes the lamb from the father. The father puts his hand on the head of the lamb. On the head of the lamb. And by doing this, he puts all the sins of his family on that little lamb. And the little boy watches as his father takes out a sharp knife. And he cuts the lamb's throat. The blood comes pouring out and they put the blood into a cup or a jar. And then the priest then takes some of the blood and he smears some of it on the altar. And the rest, he has it in that cup and he pours it out in front of the altar. And after all the fat has been trimmed off, the lamb is then put up on the, on, on the altar and the fire whoosh, eats it up. On the way back home, the little boy talks with his father again. He says, Dad, can I be sure that the Lord God has forgiven my sins? Did you see the lamb die? The father asks. Did you see it on the altar? If the lamb died and the lamb was sacrificed, then your sins are forgiven. Now that's the end of the story. If you were to go back in time and ask an Israelite in the Old Testament, why should God forgive your sins? They would say, because the Lamb died. 
And that would be a simple answer, and it would be a true answer. Sin required sacrifice. As it says in Hebrews 9.22, about the Old Testament period, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Now Hebrews 10 goes on to tell us that those sacrifices in the Old Testament, to be sure, were inadequate. They had to be offered over and over again. And the value of the sacrifice was entirely disproportionate to the sins of the people. A greater and better sacrifice needed to be made. And that lamb, many, many lambs actually in the Old Testament, point us ahead to the lamb with a capital L in the New Testament. In fact, that Old Testament lamb that we saw in that story, gives us a compelling picture of what happened to the Lamb of God in the New Testament. We read from John 1. Did you catch what John the Baptist said about Jesus in verse 29? He said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He said it again in verse 36. Look, the Lamb of God. With these prophetic words, John was tying Jesus back to the sacrificial lambs of the Old Testament. We don't only find this connection with John the Baptist, but also with the Apostle John and the revelation he received from the Lord Jesus. For instance, in Revelation 5 or 6, we read, Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. The Lamb is clearly Jesus Christ. In Revelation 7, the saints have washed their robes and made them white with the blood of the Lamb. And so also in the New Testament, we can answer the question of why God should forgive our sins by answering very simply and truly, because the Lamb died. The Catechism expresses this when it says that God no longer remembering our sins is because of Christ's satisfaction. Jesus Christ was the sacrifice which satisfied God's wrath and paid the penalty which we had incurred against ourselves. As John puts it in 1 John 2, verse 2, He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. We're forgiven, not because of anything in us, not because of anything we've done, but only and entirely because of Christ's satisfaction. This is an important truth to remember for those who are affected by suicide. Because forgiveness does not depend on our having repented of every and confessed every single sin that we've ever done in this life. A believer can take his or her own life and we can have comfort and we can have certainty that that person is with the Lord. Because of this article about the forgiveness of sins, it does not depend on us and on what we do. Anything we do, including our repentance, depends entirely on Christ. And if we believe in Christ, and we have every reason to believe Brother Beisterfeld believed in Christ, 
we can be comforted and we can have certainty because of God's promises in His Word. So Christ's satisfaction. There's one more element that the catechism introduces into the picture. It's not merely the case that our sins are forgiven and we're we're brought back to, to square one, so to speak. God's forgiveness, listen carefully, God's forgiveness does not mean that we're given a clean slate and we get to start over and try again. Or to use a different picture, it doesn't mean that the judge simply declares us innocent and lets us go to try and live clean. The good news is that Christ has not only paid for our sins with His sacrifice, He has also lived a perfect life in our place. That's why the Catechism speaks about God graciously granting us the righteousness of Christ. All of Christ's good works, all of His perfect obedience, all of that is given to us or imputed to us. Romans 5.19 puts it this way, Through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. You know what? God's forgiveness does not is not a matter of God saying, here's a clean slate. Why don't you start over and try again? No, it's God saying, here's a clean slate. And this slate is going to stay clean because you have someone who made it permanently clean for you. Nothing can ever make this slate dirty again. Nothing. It's God saying, to use the the courtroom image again, not only do I acquit you of all the charges, I also declare that you are and you always will be right with me because of what Christ did for you. And in fact, I'm going to go one step further, the judge says, I'm going to take off my robes and I'm going to come down from my bench. I'm going to put my arm around you and you're my son. And you always will be. In our court system, we don't have a category called justification. You're either innocent or you're guilty. But in God's court, you're not only declared innocent, you're also made right with Him. You're brought into relationship with the judge. The judge becomes our Father. Not merely acquitted, but justified. That's great news, isn't it? But it does leave us with a question. Because if our our sins are truly forgiven because of Christ, why do we have to keep on praying for forgiveness? Why do we do that as individuals, as families, and as a congregation each Sunday? Good question. Well, for one thing, Christ commanded us to. In the Lord's Prayer, Christ taught us to regularly pray for the forgiveness of our debts. Nobody can deny that. Nobody can change that. But it does change our question. The question now becomes, why would Christ command us to regularly pray for the forgiveness of sins if our sins are truly forgiven because of His sacrifice and obedience. 
Well, to answer that, we have to go back to Christ's Word. There are a number of passages that we could refer to, but I think 1 John 1, verses 8 and 9 are especially relevant. Sometimes we hear these words, especially verse 9, as our assurance of pardon in the morning worship service. Well, start with verse 8. Verse 8 says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 10 says the same thing. If we claim we have not sinned, we make Him out to be a liar and His Word has no place in our lives. In other words, the reality is that as Christians, we continue to sin. Then we also need to confess our sins and seek forgiveness from God. That's why verse 9 says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sins. That could also be translated if we keep on confessing our sins. It's meant to be a repeated action throughout our whole lives. Not just a once-off sort of thing. Unlike the sacrifices of the Old Testament, Christ was offered once for all. But believers repeatedly seek forgiveness on the basis of what He did that one time. And if you think about it, what could be better for our spiritual health in this world than to keep on fleeing to Christ? What could be better for us than to constantly humble ourselves and see our need for a Savior? The Savior's command is designed to prevent us from cheapening God's grace and His forgiveness. The Savior taught us to ask for the forgiveness of our sins so that we would constantly be running to Him and depending on His satisfaction and His righteousness so that we would never, not even for a moment, begin to trust in anyone or anything else. And when we do seek out God and plead for His forgiveness... He freely gives it to us. Each time He promises that He will never use those sins against us. He promises us that as far as He is concerned, we are in Christ. And we are perfect, righteous, and holy. He promises that we are right with Him and that we are His sons and heirs. Martin Luther was right. There's enough in this one article of the Creed to occupy us for a lifetime of study, reflection, and application. And more than likely, some of you still have questions that I haven't answered. On the liturgy sheet, you'll find a couple of recommendations for books that may help you further. and I'd refer you there. This is an important subject, and we do need to understand it rightly because it is so foundational. Let's now pray and ask God for His help in this. O God, our merciful and gracious Father, we thank You for the truth of Your Word concerning the forgiveness of sins. We're grateful to You for the satisfaction of Christ our Savior. We praise You that because of Him, you'll no more remember our sins 
or our sinful nature. Thank you for graciously giving us the righteousness of Christ our Lord so that we will never be condemned by you. Your goodness and your mercy are evident everywhere here as we consider this truth and we adore you. Please help us with your Holy Spirit to understand. Help us with your Spirit and Word to believe the forgiveness of sins, to seek it out from you each day, and to rest in the comfort and certainty of knowing your promises. Father, we thank you for being a forgiving God in Christ. Hear us as we pray in Him. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.